0: Since 2015, Pop Health Podcast has brought to you some of the best minds in healthcare, including leaders from government, not-for-profit, and investor-backed powerhouses, as they share successes, failures, and how our audience can move forward in today's constantly evolving healthcare world. Thank you for joining us for today's episode, presented by 24-Hour Home Care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pop Health Podcast. This is Gavin Ward, host of Pop Health Podcast, in today's episode, I had the opportunity to sit down with Jeannie Parker Martin, President and CEO of Leading Age California, and also a pillar in the healthcare community in California for many years. Leading Age California, whose membership includes many post acute organizations like CCRC or Lifeline Communities, Assisted Living Communities, Senior Living, In Home Care, and other home and community based services talks about the workforce challenge in California regarding how many caregivers we will need to successfully serve our aging population in the years to come. Current challenges include a living wage, proper training, and other things explored by Jeannie in today's episode, which also touches on the master plan on aging that was produced by the Department of Aging in California. We hope you enjoyed today's episode with Jeannie, and of course, feel free to check out other episodes of Pop Health Podcast by visiting us on our YouTube channel, pophealthpodcast.com, or other audio channels out there today, like Apple Podcasts. Thanks, everybody. Enjoy the show. All right. Well, Jeannie, thank you so much for joining the show today.
1: Well, great. Thank you so much, Gavin. I'm happy to be here.
0: Great. So uh, Jeannie is in San Francisco today, and I'm in Southern California. And uh, before we get into more about leading age and the workforce challenges we have with the aging population, we like to get to know our guests a little bit. So Jeannie, uh, why don't you open up and share with us a little bit about you, maybe something outside of the workplace, like a fun fact, hobby, something like that.
1: Yeah, well, probably the funnest fact is about this year, because with COVID-19, being at home all the time, I, uh, I, I'm a big exerciser and I've always been a big runner, walker, you know, kind of outdoorsy type person. And I started walking on almost day one of COVID, five miles a day, and then I increased that to two times a day. So now I walk about five to 10 miles almost every day. And uh, I've become uh, quite the walker in the neighborhood. Everybody knows who I am, even the garbage men early in the morning.
0: (laughs) That is great. Uh, So do you do a a regular route or do you mix it up at all?
1: Yeah, I sort of have a regular route, Gavin. Uh, Yeah, I kind of become a creature of habit, I guess, and walk down to Golden Gate Park, which isn't too far from my home, and around the lake and back. And so it's just a nice, uh, nice way to start the morning. It makes me get up a lot earlier than I used to.
0: Yes, well said. I know what you mean about the early walks, although I have not done a five-mile walk. I used to do three-mile walks,
1: uh, uh-huh.
0: <laughs> but now I am with COVID and uh, working from home. I have to admit I'm now on the treadmill um, and uh, not not quite the distance you're doing, but well done. And that's very impressive. Um, <laughs> how do you know the distance? Do you have like an Apple Watch or Fitbit or...
1: Yeah, I have a Fitbit and periodically check also my uh, my iPhone since it has the uh, the you know the the health record in there as well. So uh, my Fitbit keeps me very organized about how many miles I walk every day, and I'm very proud of it. Every day, I tell my husband how far. <laughs> <laughs> that is
0: that is awesome. Has that uh, is he also a uh, you know walker, or has that inspired him in any way?
1: Uh, you know, he's an exerciser. He doesn't walk, but he exercises every day. So he's got his whole routine himself, but not not with me walking. <laughs>
0: got it. Got it. Well, thanks, Jeannie. So let's talk a little bit about your upbringing. Um, one thing to note is you're not from California originally. So share with us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so I grew up in central Ohio in a small town called Delaware, Ohio. Most people don't know it, but you might know Ohio Wesleyan University, which uh, was right down the street from where I grew up, a small uh, liberal arts college in Ohio. Um, and uh, I went to school there, and then, you know, I grew up in Delaware, Ohio, and then I went to the East Coast for college. I went to Georgetown University, where I was a language major when I started out, because I wanted to be an interpreter to the president, and when I got to Georgetown, realized that uh, a young girl from the Midwest who spoke only English and a little textbook, Spanish and French, was unlikely to become an interpreter when my classmates were all multilingual the day they were born, I think. (laughs) Um, So from there I went on and uh, got my graduate degree at Yale University and drove cross country with my husband who I met while I was in graduate school. And so I did a cross country trip from, uh, from the East Coast to the West Coast where we've been for a very long time now and where our children have been born.
0: I love that you were self-aware in that story about your uh, abilities. Um, I think we all have dreams, right? I mean, the, an interpreter for the president sounds like a great opportunity, but uh, you, you were vulnerable and, and self-aware. Um, that's, that's wonderful. So you mentioned wanting to be an interpreter, but then you shifted to healthcare. What was that? What was the inspiration to you get into healthcare?
1: Well, uh, it, it's kind of an interesting story. My dad was a doctor. We have a long line of physicians in our family, um, from you know cousins and aunts and uncles, and you know early early women leaders. Actually, interestingly enough, so when I was young, I always wanted to be a doctor, and then uh, I kind of fell in fell in love in quotes with my Spanish teacher in high school, and decided I would become a, an interpreter at that point. So. My background really was always an interest in healthcare. So it was a very easy shift for me when I realized I couldn't be the interpreter to the president, but that I could, uh, in fact, go into healthcare and be successful. So I switched into nursing when I was in uh, college and graduated with my nursing degree from Georgetown University. And my master's degree is in public health administration. So when we came cross-country, I already was very involved in AIDS work on the East Coast, uh, meaning uh, AIDS, the the disease, and um, became very involved here in San Francisco. I started the first AIDS home care and hospice program in the country, which sort of launched me into a national uh, footprint, which I never anticipated, so um, you know, I got into healthcare because I didn't become an interpreter, but but in reality, it was always in my blood.
0: Yeah, that that is great. I didn't know about the the work uh, with the AIDS population that you mentioned. We actually had a gentleman not too long ago on the show, uh, a gentleman named Matt Chappelle. Not sure if you know that name, but he I didn't also. Know that. Okay, he is a social work leader at Stanford, and also did a lot of work with the AIDS population in San Francisco in the '90s. So I thought maybe um, your paths have crossed. So you get that national footprint. You're you know making some headway in healthcare as a leader, and then I noticed in your uh, background that in '95 you uh, were part of this group called the Corridor Group. Um, so again, before we get into leading age, could you share with us briefly? Uh, what is the Corridor Group?
1: Yeah, the Corridor Group uh, is a national consulting firm. Uh, at the time that I was um, the, I was one of the owners of the Corridor Group, um, and with my business partner, we had a, a consulting practice, an education practice, and also an executive search practice. So that was early on, and then um, I was very involved in strategic positioning and merger and acquisition work. Uh, worked with a lot of um, attorneys related to regulatory compliance, all focused on home health and hospice providers across the country. So we worked with some of the largest and now still the largest uh, home health and hospice providers. I remain on the board of the Corridor Group, which is uh, more commonly now just referred to as Corridor. We sold the company in 2012 um, to a private equity firm, and I still... Uh, remain involved at the board level, but not on any operational level. So it's a great company. Uh, they shifted. Uh, over time, they've shifted to be more of a coding company. Mm-hmm. And so working very much on the kind of the billing reimbursement and, and coding side.
0: Okay. Got it. Thanks, Jeannie. So you then transitioned over to help with leading age. So can you tell, and we'll we'll get into how Leading Age supported this report on the workforce challenges we have here in California. But before we get into that report, can you share with us a little bit about Leading Age?
1: Yeah. So Leading Age California is an organization that focuses on advocacy, education, and public awareness for a variety of types of providers who are out of hospital providers. So our members, we have about 700 members across the state of California. Many of your listeners will know some of our members. They are continuing care retirement communities, or as we like to call them, life plan communities, uh, assisted living facilities, skilled nursing facilities, senior affordable housing communities, and home health and hospice providers and other home and community-based providers like PACE programs. Okay. Uh, So we have a a wide range of organizations that are part of our membership. And uh, we have had an Age On, Rage On campaign, which was a campaign uh, mainly on social media, but also in newspapers at the time. Uh, We were focusing on raising awareness about the needs of older adults in the state and also their needs for caregivers and long-term services and support financing. So that was a really big campaign. You can still Google at ageonrayjohn.com. Uh, it's still available on the internet. We update it and we're using it in some of our social media activities. But it, Leading Age California is a great organization. It's part of a national um, system of organizations by the same name, our national affiliate or our national partner is leading age. They focus on federal issues and the state affiliates focus on obviously mostly state related issues. But of course, for affordable housing, some of you will know that are listening. Affordable housing is primarily managed or reimbursed and pay, paid for at the st- at the federal level under what is called HUD. Yeah. Housing and urban development. You may be familiar with that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I am familiar. I think there is. Have you ever seen the show designated survivor by chance?
1: Uh, No, I haven't.
0: (laughs) So I think the character that ends up being the president actually led HUD. Um, And so for those who aren't familiar with HUD, uh, basically, long story short, in the in the show, you know, there's an explosion, and they have to basically go down many levels to see who's the next president and end up being the, the guy who led HUD. So, some of our listeners, that <laughs> might be their only reference. I'm familiar because of the challenges here, you know, with the aging population. Yeah. Um, yes. So, yeah. so, Leading Age California is part of a larger group called Leading Age, which is a national organization. Um, and Leading Age was one of the supporters of a recent report. And that report was called Transitioning to Quality Jobs Are Essential, California's Direct Care Workforce and the Master Plan for Aging. Uh, I had to look at my notes because that's a really long title. I hope I got it right and wanted to see if you can share a little bit about the background about how this report came together and leading ages involvement and any any other work that's that you guys have done that would tie into that subject
1: yeah so this is a really critical uh, report and if i can comment on the master plan for aging you know the master plan for aging is a roadmap for the state of california and the the group that came together as the stakeholder advisory committee represented a wide range of individuals from academia from providers to consumers and others so a really great opportunity to work together and create a roadmap for the future. And a very, very important part of that roadmap is related to caregiving. So as you think about the state of California, we have um, a huge demand for caregivers with our aging population. And uh, most people on the phone will know the growth numbers, but in the the United States, we're expecting about a a demand for about 7.8 million more caregivers over the next several years through 2030. And in California, we expect to have 275,000 new jobs for caregivers. So these are these are really big numbers. Um, and although um, there are a broader need for healthcare workers, the caregivers themselves are what we're focusing on. And that's why this particular report is so important because quality jobs in caregiving are very difficult, uh, number one, because the pay generally is fairly low. Um, The types of workers that go into caregiving jobs really range from family caregivers to individuals who are professional caregivers, meaning they went to some sort of a training program like a certified nurse assistant or a certified home care aide, um, a, a registered nurse, a licensed vocational nurse, and on uh, throughout the field of healthcare. But the hands-on caregivers are the most difficult to identify, they're the most difficult to um, support in many ways. As as, uh, many of you know, family caregivers in particular uh, often are part of the in-home support service system in California or the IHS worker.
0: Go ahead, sorry Jeannie.
1: Oh, I thought maybe yeah. you want to ask a question. I um, do but uh,
0: no, I please keep going.
1: <laughs> yeah, so so in the context of you know IHS workers there is a set of individuals who work in that system. But as we all age and also the many people who have significant disabilities and need caregiving support at home, um, we're going to continue to need more caregivers. And so, quality jobs are essential, and finding workers to fill those positions is also essential. And that's one of the big things that Leading Age California is also working on. So, Leading Age California, in addition to this particular report that you're referring to, uh, transitioning to quality jobs in California. Um, the uh, Leading Age California has established a workforce blueprint for action. And that workforce blueprint for action is going to help ra- raise uh, the focus on caregivers in provider situations, not necessarily in specific home care settings that might be one of them, but also across that spectrum of membership that we have. So it could be caregiving needs in a retirement community or caregiving needs in a a SNF or in a a home health or hospice provider situation and affordable housing. So we're looking at those various elements. And what we realized is that if we honed our own work into our member organizations and then beyond with other provider associations that we could raise awareness provide education and training, and also provide critical recruitment and retention tools to aid those provider organizations across the state. And there are many, Um, there are um, uh, uh, 1200 nursing homes alone in the state. So that gives you an idea of just how many nursing homes, meaning skilled nursing facilities that are licensed by the state. That's just one segment of the provider organizations that doesn't include all of the assisted living communities, all of the home health providers or the hospice providers or the affordable housing service coordinators that we need.
0: Yeah, that I mean, there's so much to do, right? And one of, one of my questions, you actually touched on it um, earlier, you mentioned the different types of folks who would be labeled a caregiver right in the different environments and there's so many different names of these direct caregiving providers so thank you for touching on that ahead of time um so as we talked about before uh or as i may have emailed before as well we had kim mccoy wade on the show um earlier this year i'm sure you're well connected and and well uh well acquainted with her um so you also touched on the master plan um, and the fourth goal of the master plan is caregiving that works. And you briefly touched on it. Um, so one of the challenges that our, our audience may or may not know is for every dollar of a wage increase for a caregiver, the, cons- the person paying that caregiver will have to pay about $1.25. So for example, if I, if I employ a caregiver and I have to pay him or her a dollar more an hour, that's really about $1.20, $1.25 in cost to me with taxes and things like that. If someone at McDonald's makes a dollar more an hour, I might have to pay 10 cents more for my hamburger. When you add those dollars up, if you're an employer, people just can't typically afford it unless you're middle or upper middle class. And so I wanted to see like what, what are some of the things in your rapport or, or strategies in general that can support paying these caregivers more when often the client is the one paying? Just just out of curiosity, how do we make this work?
1: Yeah, it's a a really great question, uh, Gavin, and also a really important one. Um, As we look at just policy implications, um, when uh, an IHSS worker goes out to care for somebody in a home setting, Someone who is uh, needs assistance with uh, their activities of daily living, for example, that IHSS worker is paid for by the state, and so from a policy perspective, policymakers have to also establish a floor that's a living wage that's that's equal to and better than. Those other service-related jobs that one can get, say at a McDonald's, as you mentioned, um, but more importantly, um, as you go up the um, the ladder of caregiving roles, you're not just competing with uh, the service industry; you're you're really competing with the healthcare field. So hospitals, who are at higher reimbursement levels are are often the places that individuals go who are interested in caregiving work, so as a uh, caregiver in a home setting, I might be able to shift to a hospital setting and make five or six dollars more per hour, which is significant so even though California has a, a wage of a minimum wage of fifteen dollars, um, that wage is is still not enough to attract people to get to the field. So most of our members, for example, pay more than minimum wage. We've done surveys on this particular issue and they pay more than minimum wage. So in a home setting as an individual, it's really going to be the policy that has to change to establish a floor and then reimbursement flowing to those individuals. So uh, a new program called CalAIM, which uh, some of the listeners probably sit in on those calls know um, will be a shift in thinking about how long-term services and supports are paid for in the state, um, and that is a Medicaid, that ultimately will be the Medi-Cal advantage, you know, Medi-Cal managed care plan across the state of California when it's fully implemented over the course of the next several years. But there will be access to more resources, we believe, in uh, to pay for those caregivers in the home setting because of a shift in thinking about the needs of people living in their home versus the need for them to stay in a hospital or the need for them to be in a skilled nursing facility there's still going to be a need for all those facility types but there uh, might be a shift in thinking about who can go home and how they go home earlier with the right caregiving support so I, uh, that's just one one option i think the other option the other uh, policy issue is about uh, requiring that people who are caregivers that are in the home get regular benefits. No, no. Uh, many of our listeners know that people who work in home settings often don't get any benefits. It's often cash under the table. And uh, I would just say that whoever pays cash under the table should really rethink that because you're doing a you're you're harming the individual who's working in your home. So Some of you may have a gardener, some of you may have a housekeeper, even those individuals, they need to have access to all the benefits that everyone has. Those are the types of workers that many people rely on to be able to remain in their home setting. But caregiving jobs at another level than the the two I just described Um, are a huge requirement and we have to pay fair wages. We have to provide benefits to them. And so policy and reimbursement needs to follow the worker and be accessible to whoever is going to pay that worker to help them stay in their home setting.
0: So let's let's continue on this path. So one of the pieces of the report is, and we've heard this across the country, a universal home care. Um, so, a question I have for you is, what is this universal home care approach?
1: Yeah, well, um, you know, this this gets back to those various different positions that I described earlier. So, in a home setting, in a provider setting, often there are different jobs that are performed by different people. So, a universal home care worker allows for one individual to do more than might have been in their prior quote job description. So for example, if you're a home health aide in Calif- a home care aide in California and you're going into you come into my home, I've been in the hospital, I'm now home uh, recuperating from a hip replacement. Uh, If I don't have a home care aide, but I have a partner who's able to care for me, that partner can give me my medications. They can probably be trained to change my dressing. But sometimes that doesn't occur. There's not a partner in the home or somebody who can help that's a family member uh, that could be that person. So I might be eligible because I've just gotten home after a hip replacement for home health to come in. But my home health aide or my home care aide can't give me medications. They can hand me a cup to take medications, but they can't put the medications in my Mediset. They can't change my dressing, even if it's a simple dressing. it's, It's outside of their scope of practice when, in fact, they might be quite able to be trained to do some of those roles. So a universal home care worker would allow an individual like a home care aide who hasn't been trained in some of the more scientific requirements like changing a simple dressing or maybe uh, uh, distributing the medications they haven't they haven't had a, a training program like that could they but they could be trained to do those things So a universal home care Uh, worker would do be able to do some of those things and the same thing happens in a provider setting um, like an assisted living the same restrictions apply but others could be trained to do some of the same jobs so there would be some progression perhaps of skills training of scope of practice aligned with the worker skills, compensation, and then it allows that individual for some career advancement, which is what some people are looking for. Not everyone, but a lot of people would really like to be able to move up the career ladder in healthcare, make a little bit more money or a lot more money, um, and uh, be able to continue to thrive in a career that would allow them to do this. So a home care worker approach a universal home care worker approach is a very, very valuable consideration. We're currently looking at a universal, uh, we're calling it a universal worker, uh, not necessarily just home care, but a universal worker um, in healthcare, uh, pilot project in our member population. So we're uh, right now talking with the state about how that might be approachable and how we might be able to pilot out some of these different roles so that we can have some data that supports them. Currently, there are provider organizations in the state that use universal workers, but we don't have uh, a study or data to support the outcomes of using those universal workers. And we think it's critical if we're going to shift anything in the scope of practice of different levels of workers, that we have some data to support the outcomes that are positive outcomes. And if they're not positive outcomes, rethink how we might be able to use those workers or change a scope um, or provide more training, which is really what it might be about is more training.
0: Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I know in states like Texas, um, in my my day job, um, our Texas <laughs> team, the caregivers out there have more ability and freedom to do some of these universal worker things like changing, addressing, or even administering some basic medication. But in California, like you're talking about, um, there's more limitations there. So I think that's a great idea. Um, one th- quick thing to note, uh, you mentioned with leading age California, a lot of your members are CCRCs or life uh, life planning communities. Did I get that right? Life plan? Life,
1: life plan. Uh-huh. Thank you.
0: Um, now with those groups, people typically have to pay, you know, the the population that lives in those communities are typically folks who have saved um, and have some type of assets in retirement to be able to afford to live in those communities and be taken care of. So um, the workers that work in those communities um, are being paid not by the state, but by those communities typically. They might do IHSS on the side. So I'm curious if your strategies for developing this workforce are for all caregivers, or if there are differences for IHSS workers, which the state would ultimately fund, versus these others, which consumers would fund or pay for? Yes.
1: So um, that that's a really great question. So our blueprint for action at Leading Age California. So it's a Leading Age California workforce blueprint for action, which is really focused on our membership, which is the post-acute spectrum of care providers. And it's looking at, it's intended to create more jobs and people coming into the field across all those categories. So in that regard, um, I think what's important is that in a skilled nursing facility, in a um, CCRC or life plan community, typically you wouldn't be using IHSS workers. There might be circumstances where you would, but typically in those two types of settings, you wouldn't have IHSS workers. The difference between the IHSS workers is that's focused on the Medi-Cal population. And so individuals have to qualify for Medi-Cal in their home setting. So it's possible that they could be living in a retirement community or in, Uh, not in a a SNF so much, but in an assisted living community, they could be. Um, I don't know the statistics on how many IHSS workers work in those types of settings, but I would suspect that that number is fairly low Yeah.
0: um,
1: just by nature of of the types of individuals. So one of the things that's important, and and I'm going to drift off from your question just a little bit, you, you touch on something that's really critical. So Leading Age California focuses on the spectrum of types of individuals that live in California from the highest net worth individuals who move into high-end life plan communities to the lowest income individuals who are living in uh, low income housing or uh, afford- we call it affordable housing. And we focus on the older adult population Uh, That's just our focus. Um, So in that older adult population, we see the spectrum of needs and how income really does influence what kind of care one gets. Uh, Our focus is not so much on the homeless population, although indirectly, by virtue of advocating for more affordable housing, we're hoping also to move people who are homeless or living in. not permanent housing, they're living in some temporary housing situation, we're hoping that we can move those individuals through our advocacy work, and, um, and, and I'll talk about the master plan for aging related to that into these other settings. So back to the care, the IHSS workers and the other caregivers. So um, in, in terms of the uh, caregivers, the IHSS workers typically are paid for by the state. And if, they're, if you're in a provider setting, particularly in a CCRC or in some um, assisted living settings, the individual would be paying out of pocket for that. And that's where it gets very costly when you're uh, competing with these um, other types of settings. So if I'm an individual, I may have to pay 15 or $20 an hour. And so the, uh, in, as we move forward, the importance of the Master Plan for Aging is to think about the spectrum of individuals, the spectrum of their care delivery needs, and how can the state and or federal government pay for some of these long-term services and support needs that individuals have in their home. So the, the aid that's required to keep me at home as I age because I no longer can prepare my own meals. I can no longer shower alone. I can no longer um, uh, uh, bathe by myself. Uh, You know, I can't do all of my personal care alone and or possibly be safe in my home. So in that regard, I may have some ability to pay, but not full ability to pay. But we know it's cheaper for me to stay in my home setting than if I slip and fall because I am alone and have to be transported to the emergency department and then I'm hospitalized because I broke my hip. That's a much greater cost than for the Medicare or medi system or private insurance system to pay for some of those costs for me to remain at home. And I have some personal examples about this very, very situation. Um, I have a sibling who is uh, living in affordable housing, who does receive services paid for by the local county that he lives in. And so it allows him to stay at home and he's never been hospitalized. He's never been to the emergency department. And without that support, he would very likely, he's an older adult and would very likely have had some episode where he would not have had the right uh, assistance at home. So those are the kind of situations.
0: So, I want to touch on that. Um, one of the things so getting folks to pay for caregiving and not just for the MediCal or Medicaid population in other states. quick example uh, that you probably know our listeners may have heard of this, but uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, which is often referred to as CMS, has given private Medicare advantage plans the ability to include caregiving in their plans. Typically, it's being used by groups like Scan Health Plan. Um, Anthem throughout the country. I know Humana does it in certain pockets as well. Typically, the the caregiving that these private plans are willing to pay for is short term and does help with a post hospitalization transition or respite care. So, there is some funding that's relatively new happening, but it's still not a lot. You mentioned uh, the prevention of hospitalizations and ED use by having a caregiver in place. There's not a lot of data out there to prove that that works. We have the anecdotes, we know, you know, it saves money for that one hospitalization, but do you have a, where can folks in the industry find data that supports this argument? I've struggled and I'm in the industry.
1: Yeah, uh, great question. Uh, Actually, there is a lot of emerging data on this very topic. So uh, as we look at uh, in California, the health plans that are county-based health plans, Uh, Those county-based health plans have partnered with other providers of home care, housing, skilled nursing facilities, and hospitals across their county. Uh, San Mateo Health Plan would be an example of this kind of a situation where they have been saving millions of dollars because they have partnered with uh, other providers who will make sure that an individual stays in their home setting or is moved from a nursing home Back into a home environment through partnerships. So there is data that's emerging now. And I think COVID highlighted so many important issues. Um, if if there's, I, I think there are, uh, there is a very big silver lining. And that is that the needs of those who are, are homebound, whether they are older adults who live alone and maybe were isolated during COVID. Uh, older adults with disability or younger individuals with disabilities who might have been even more isolated because they were unable to leave their house during this last year. The needs of this population were highlighted during COVID. And so I think it's a huge, huge wake-up call that health plans have realized that if care is provided in the home setting, and if the right kinds of services are available across a period of years, and perhaps many decades for some individuals, that it will help keep them out of the hospital and save, save millions of dollars. There are some good, good examples. Um, Washington State has a long-term services and supports program now. Ohio has a very good uh, long-term services and supports program. Um, and there are some on the East Coast as well. So there are some really good programs that have uh, that are collecting data now, and that should be available if not soon. I know I, I don't know if it's publicly available information or not, but I know that some of the county-based programs in California have been demonstrating clear, clear cost savings to um, the state system, meaning MediCal, and as uh, and to some of those to Medicare. And under CMMI, which is, is the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, um, CMMI has also funded demonstration projects that are showing cost savings by keeping people in a, a home and community-based setting. So there might be information on their uh, website as well, on the cmmi.gov website.
0: Thanks, Jeannie. Uh, that's helpful information. Um, looking forward to seeing that more publicly available. Um, So I did prepare a bunch of questions, I haven't gotten to all of them, but you pretty much touched on everything. One thing we haven't touched on is the five pillars of direct care job quality. Um, That is in the master plan on aging. That's something I wanted to touch on. Um, We are uh, running short on time, but is there anything in the five pillars and the state plan that really stands out to you or that you think is important to share with the audience?
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, I think um, these five pillars are critical. Uh, I think as we think about training and quality training, I talked about that a little bit earlier. Uh, it's it's really important because if we have quality training, we can move people early into. Uh, the housing care and services field. We can move them into the caregiving aspects of older adults and caring for those with disabilities. So really, really critical. Um, Another pillar is fair compensation, which I did mention uh, earlier. Paying at a livable wage, not just any wage, and at the federal level, we know the minimum wage is dismal, and a lot of states don't have uh higher wages than the federal minimum wage which fortunately california does in some cities even have higher minimum wages um so i think that's really critical quality supervision and support for these caregivers a lot of individuals that are uh, working in home settings may be working in those settings for the first time and there are some uh, laws for caregiving in the home setting that require experience if you're a nurse but as a, um, an, uh, other workers are not required to have any experience. So it may be the first time that an individual has um, a caregiving responsibility that requires some uh, more advanced understanding, as I mentioned earlier, of wound care, of medication management, et cetera. And then I I think also um, it's not described this way, but the whole issue of equity and respect for individuals uh, in, in the home setting or in these caregiving roles. We know that many Black and brown people are in those caregiving roles, and as we continue to Uh, build awareness and educate these individuals and others to come into the field, I think we need to realize that equity in these issues is critical and and very important. Um, And then finally, I think that we need to create real opportunities. And that's what the Leading Age California Blueprint for Action is intending to do, to to take the elements of the caregiving workforce that are described in the Master Plan for Aging and move them uh, into a specific targeted provider organization audience, but one that can collaborate with other provider organizations and then across the spectrum of of out-of-hospital services across the state.
0: Yeah, there's there's so much. Um, I mean, these are just touching, scratching the surface, right? Very important pillars, important parts, but getting to the end is going to be the biggest challenge. Executing all these, right, is going to be the biggest challenge. So you've been great, Jeannie. Um, How can folks learn more about Leading Age California?
1: Oh, you can go to our website, LeadingAgeCA, like California, LeadingAge, like your age, LeadingAgeCA.org. We have lots of information and resources on our website. Uh, We are a provider-focused organization, so you don't tend to find so much consumer-directed information. Um, but the individuals who are healthcare workers on, on the call today or who are listening today can certainly also join Leading Age California. Uh, we have great education, great training. You can attend our webinars, attend our conferences, uh, get access to lots of really great information um, about uh, caring for older adults in these various settings. So it's, uh, we'd love to have more members and we would love to have all of your listeners uh, join, including you.
0: Yeah, I was actually, once we're done with the recording, I was actually going to talk to you about exploring that um, now that I'm getting to know you guys a little bit better. Nice pitch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, Jeannie, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, you've been great a great guest on the show. I um, really appreciate you and uh, being available to our audience. Uh, folks, again, um, you know, we can't have guests like Jeannie on the show without you listening or watching on our new YouTube channel. So feel free to leave a review about this episode or any others. And uh, we are now celebrating over six years of pop podcast and Jeannie, uh, you are a uh, guest number, I think 140. So without folks like you, Jeannie joining the show, we can't make this happen. And a quick tangent here, I interned in college for ABC, American Broadcasting Company, and uh, I always wanted to be on TV or uh, a reporter. And folks like you, Jeannie, make me get a little bit of that joy uh, in today's world. So thank you so much again. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks, Jeannie. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Pop Health Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode, and if you have and want to check out other episodes, visit us at pophealthpodcast.com, iTunes or Apple Music, Spotify, Stitcher, and now YouTube as well. Take care.